Good afternoon. Greetings, uh, Refuge Fellowship Chiang Mai, and also friends joining us from Refuge Fellowship Yangon. Great to have you with us. Uh, I want to give you greetings from my home church, Grace Community Church in St. Cloud, Florida, uh, USA, near Orlando, where I serve as one of the pastors there. Uh, also, greetings from the rest of the Shemeca family. Some of us are here. Uh, my son Boaz has joined me on this trip, as well as, of course, Laura, who lives here. Uh, but greetings from the rest of our family, my wife Karen and our other children, Kristen, Sarah, Luke, Jubilee, Jonathan, Jeremiah, and Josiah. Because of them, it's possible for me to be here today with you, and so I'm very, very grateful to them for holding down the fort at home. It's a great honor and a joy for me to be with you here today. I want to say a special thank you to Pastor Chris and also Pastor Aaron uh, and also the Moon family for hosting us in their home. Uh, Wonderful uh, hospitality on their part. Thanks also to the elders serving here at Refuge Fellowship Chiang Mai. Really appreciate it. The last time I preached at Refuge was about a year ago, a little over a year ago, and uh, my, how things have changed in a year. Uh, When I preached here last, the church was still meeting in the Moon's first house, and there were just a couple families. They were still waiting for most of their equipment to arrive in a container from Myanmar. And um, it's quite a dramatic change to see all of you here today and this wonderful facility and just how God has worked and moved and provided. Uh, I rejoice with you to see the growth here, uh, both the growth in numbers and the growth in individuals uh, who have uh, drawn closer to God and, and some that have come to faith for the first time through the Ministry of Refuge. It's a glorious thing. I'm also excited to have gotten to participate in some of the outreaches over the last two weeks and to know that you guys are making an impact on this city. So praise God for that. God is moving at Refuge, and I'm thankful to be a small part of his work here today. So as we prepare to receive the message from God's word, let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, your word reminds us in John 14, 21, that he who loves you, you will love and reveal yourself to him. God, that's our prayer today, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. Holy Spirit, give us understanding of your holy word today. Illuminate the text that we're going to be studying. Impress it upon our hearts, Lord. May it not fall on deaf ears or hard hearts, Lord, but make us pliable, Lord. Make us willing to receive and to heed all that you have for us today in your word. Holy Spirit, work Through the proclamation and the preaching of your word today, we pray in my heart and the hearts of those gathered here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to ask a favor. One thing we do at home uh, when we read the main text of Scripture is we stand. So would you please stand with me as we read from John 6, verses 22 through 40. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent, 
So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Give us this day our daily bread. We've all prayed it before. It's part of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6:11. One of my favorite images from Laura's and my first mission to Myanmar in 2013 is a photo of a woman bending over to pick up a big round basket and collecting little sardines and other fish from the Bay of Bengal along the shores of Wei Song, Myanmar. It was a really powerful image, and it reminded me that this was her daily bread. This was something she likely did daily to meet her need for sustenance. Uh, No storehouses of food, but rather daily, just-in-time provision of her need by the author and sustainer of life, a tangible reminder of the goodness of God. Today, I want to challenge you to think of our Lord's Prayer, as well as communion, in a bigger way. That when we pray the Lord's Prayer and eat the communion bread, we're not only dealing with physical nourishment, but with spiritual provision with God himself as our bread of life. Praise God. He's pleased to give us of himself and life everlasting. The big idea of our message today is feed on Christ, the bread of life, and live forever with him. Feed on Christ, the bread of life, and live forever with him. Our main points under this big idea will be three. First, seek after that which is eternal and spiritual. Secondly, Accept Jesus as fully God with the power to grant eternal life. And thirdly, rejoice and give thanks to God that Jesus will lose none of those who are his. Amen. Today's passage is the first of the nine marvelous I am statements that Jesus recounts for us uh, in the Gospel of John, all of which point to the deity of Christ, the godness of Jesus. These are in succession, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Before Abraham was, I am, and I am he, referring to Jesus of Nazareth. These I am statements of Christ form a sort of backbone for the Gospel of John and reflect the purpose of this gospel as stated in John 20, verses 30 and 31, which tells us, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
Jesus proclaimed that he is the bread of life and began his litany of I am statements pointing to his deity so that we may believe that he is the Son of God and have life in him. With this context, let's work through today's text as we consider Jesus, I am, the bread of life. Verses 22 to 24. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. What can we learn from this first part of our passage? Well, as we studied recently in Matthew 14, uh, the disciples had left in the boat without Jesus and did not rejoin him until he appeared to them while walking on the Sea of Galilee, as Pastor Chris talked about last week. This must have been a confusing thing for those who came to see uh, Jesus as they wondered where he had gone since they knew he had not gone in the boat with the disciples. And though the crowd had various motives for seeking Jesus, at least they were seeking him. How often do we go about our lives seeking after other things other than Jesus? In recounting the heroes of faith, God reminds us in Hebrews 11:6 that he rewards those who earnestly, who diligently seek him. Seeking God is a sign of faith as we seek after that which we believe will help us. When we fail to seek after God, it's a warning sign that our faith is lacking and unbelief is creeping in. Christian, ask yourself, are you truly seeking Christ, earnestly, diligently, seeking to follow him, to know him more deeply, to surrender, as we sang a moment ago, completely to him, to abide in him? Does your prayer life and your time in his word reflect that? Beloved, hear the words of our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8, when he exhorts us, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. We serve a Savior who desires to be sought and to give you the good gifts of knowing him. Seek after him diligently, and I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Let's move on to verses 25 through 27, the first part. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that it endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. We see in this part of our passage how Jesus, as he often does, goes to the heart of the matter, which is the matters of the heart. In his omniscience, he exposes the reason for the crowd seeking him because of the miracle he had done feeding them with the five loaves and two fish and the physical blessings that they could obtain from him. He chastises them by instructing them to work for spiritual food, Spiritual food that endures to eternal life, not merely for the physical food that perishes. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has put eternity into man's heart. How easy it is to forget and to live as though what we see in this life is all there is or all there ever will be. That is a lie of the enemy, and we ought not fall for it. 
As the crowd was focused on filling their bellies, Jesus was concerned with filling their souls and meeting their greatest need, which was to know him and to find eternal life in him. When Jesus heals the paralytic, the one that the four men lowered through the hole in the roof, before healing him, recall that he says to them, says to the man in Mark 2, 5, Son, your sins are forgiven. Discerning that the scribes were questioning in their hearts Jesus' authority to forgive sins, Jesus says in Mark 2, 9, Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? In other words, what is the greater miracle? That Jesus would forgive the man's sins and save his soul forever? or that Jesus would heal his paralysis for the rest of his earthly life. Well, of course, the greater miracle then as now was the one of eternal significance, the salvation of a soul. Jesus is not saying that the body and its needs are unimportant, but simply that they ought to be of a lower priority than the spiritual, the spirit. Remember the words of Christ in Matthew six thirty-one through 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus' point in this part of our text is to prioritize the spiritual, to seek first to have spiritual needs met, to value the spiritual blessings over the physical blessings. How often we fail to do this in our day-to-day Think about how much time you spend doing things to maximize physical comfort and to meet your physical needs. The time you spend preparing and consuming food, washing clothes, earning money to buy things, taking care of possessions, and the list goes on and on, right? God knows we have need of these things, but have we struck the right balance? Does the way we invest our time and our resources reflect the higher value and priority Jesus places on the eternal and the spiritual? This is a question we should ask ourselves every day. This is one area where those of us from the West tend to get this woefully wrong, with way too much time spent on the temporal and the physical compared to the eternal and the spiritual. What lasts forever, what lasts forever that we should be devoting more of our time and attention to? It's a good question. God's word answers it. God's word tells us in Deuteronomy 33:27, God is eternal. So we need to spend time on God. God's word tells us in Psalm 119:89, his word is eternal. We need to spend time in his word. God's word tells us in Matthew 25:46, our souls and the souls of our fellow image bearers, our of image of God bearers will last forever. We need to spend time in relationship and investing in the souls of our fellow image bearers who will last forever. These are God's priorities. Are they yours? Bringing glory to himself and his name through the proclamation of his word and his reign in the souls of image bearers, his image bearers. Beloved, are these your priorities? Does your life reflect these priorities? What needs to change in us to get with God's program? Is worship of God and bringing him glory your daily reality? Do prayer and God's word permeate your life throughout the week? Are you burdened for the condition of your own soul before a holy God and the souls of those in your care and those in the lost and dying world all around us? Beloved, hear and heed the words of Jesus. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, 
which the Son of Man will give to you. Let's look at the tail end of verse 27. It says, For on him God the Father has set his seal. Why should we listen to and obey the works of Christ here? The end of verse 27 tells us, For on him God the Father has set his seal. Why should we listen to and obey the words of Christ in this passage? Because God the Father has put his stamp of approval, his seal, upon his son, Jesus. This passage brings to mind the words of God the Father upon the baptism of Jesus, recounted in Matthew 3:17, where he says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Similarly, the words of God the Father speaking to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17:5, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Why should we listen to Jesus calling us to work for the food that endures to eternal life? Because Jesus has the seal of approval of God the Father who is pleased with his Son and has called us to listen to him. And that's all the reason we need. Let's keep moving in our passage, verses 28 and 29. We read there, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. What does it mean to work for the food that endures to eternal life? The crowd essentially asks this question in verse 28 when they inquire of Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus responds simply but profoundly, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. In other words, to do the work of God To work for that which is of eternal significance, we must first believe in Jesus, the one whom God has sent. Any work not founded upon belief, faith, in Jesus is not a work of God. Hebrews 11.6 reminds us that without faith it is impossible to please God. Jesus knew that a heart that truly believes in him will be compelled to follow him and to seek after that which is eternal. This is why the prayer of the father of the child uh, with the unclean spirit in Mark 9:24 is so important when he cries out to Jesus, "I believe, help my unbelief." Beloved, how often do we focus on external externals and behavior management and a list of do's and don'ts but miss the heart issue? If you're struggling with sin, ask yourself, "How is your belief? How is your love for God?" For a greater love will always crowd out a lesser love. Does your dependence upon God in prayer and time in his word give credence to your profession of Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, your rock and your Redeemer? Beloved, if you want to please God and to do his kingdom work and work for that which is eternal, you must begin by truly believing in Jesus, the one whom God has sent, that he is who he says he is, the way, the truth, and the life and the only way to the Father. Let's move to kind of the the midsection of our passage, verses 30 through 35. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In these verses, we see the crux of our text, the people asking for a sign in order that they may believe, a sign like when Moses prayed and God fed the Israelites wandering in the wilderness of Sinai, manna, bread from heaven. The outrageousness of this crowd's request is not immediately evident, but becomes apparent when you consider that these are the same people who just saw Jesus miraculously feed 5,000 men and an unknown number of women and children, and many of them had likely already seen Jesus heal many sick people, and yet they still wanted yet another sign proving that Jesus was who he said he was. It is not unlike the situation when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness of Sinai, They had just experienced God's miraculous deliverance of them out of slavery in Egypt and their escape from Pharaoh's army by the parting of the Red Sea. And yet they began grumbling against Moses and Aaron and pining for Egypt. We read in Exodus 16.3, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Oh, woe is me, right? Um, God responds in Exodus 16:4. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. This bread from heaven was manna. Though God would have been completely justified in letting the feckless Israelites starve in the wilderness, he nonetheless patiently responds, mercifully responds, providing for their physical need for food. We see something of the same thing in our text today as Jesus is remarkably patient with the people who are seeking yet another miraculous sign, though they've seen several already. And yet Jesus goes much further than uh, God did with the Israelites in the wilderness by providing manna. Here Jesus sees their emaciated souls and has compassion on them, offering them something much greater than manna, the true bread from heaven himself. This idea of the bread of God was not new to the Israelites. The sacrifices made by the Levites were called the bread of God. We read this in Leviticus 21, 16 through 22. But Jesus as the bread of life stood in sharp contrast to the sacrifices offered by the Levites and to the manna provided by God to the Israelites in the wilderness. The sacrifices offered by the Levites were insufficient, and they were of temporary effect and had to be repeated continually. The sacrifice of Christ at Calvary was sufficient, once for all whom Christ came to save, never to be repeated. And that's why we celebrate communion as a memorial and not a re-sacrificing of Christ as we see in the Catholic Mass. The bread provided by God to the Israelites in the wilderness was dead. It rotted after only a day and only provided strength for one day. Jesus, however, is alive, and he never fails, but he gives life for every day, forever. Jesus makes this point in the verses following our text today when he says in John 6, 48 through 52, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. It's also important to note that manna only helped one nation, the Israelites, but Christ came to help every nation, every tongue, every tribe in the whole world. Praise God. 
because I'm assuming most of us here are Gentiles, right? Here Jesus offers the people something of eternal value, something that will never fail them, something that will meet all of their needs, something life-giving, something eternal life-giving, and greater than anything this world has to offer, and that was the gift of himself. The people focused on physical food because they could not grasp what Jesus was offering them. It's as though they were looking down and could only see what was around their feet, failing to look up and see the grandeur of the mountains and the stars and the heavens above. Their view of their need and what was offered to them in Christ was too small and too shallow. Beloved, how often do we make this same mistake? Consumed with our physical needs and temporary hardships, unaware of the spiritual warfare raging all around us and the peril that we're in, and distracted with the temporal cares of this life, looking around instead of looking up to the one who can help us, looking up to Christ and resting in the fullness of who he is and what he has done for us. O Christian, hear the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3, as he revels in the blessings and the benefits that we have in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, for the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In him we have obtained an inheritance. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And there's much more in Ephesians. I skipped around just to hit the highlights of the blessings we have in Christ. And be reminded that in this first I am statement of the gospel of John, you have Christ offering himself to you. In the beginning of a tour de force of nine I am proclamations in this gospel. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Who comes to me, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Having met their physical need for food, Jesus affirms that he is the one to satisfy their spiritual needs. John 8.12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of Christ illuminates good and evil and brings life to those who follow him. His word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, Psalm 119, 105 tells us. John 10, 7 through 9, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. We are the sheep and Jesus is the only way to the sheepfold. John 10, 11 through 15, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus is the shepherd that leads us as his sheep. He knows each of his sheep, and each of his sheep know him. As shepherd, he lays down his life at Calvary for his sheep. Jesus assigns to himself the role of shepherd, one of the roles of God that we see in Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
It was really a special moment at the School for Life the other day. Uh, we played a section of the Jesus film about the story of Lazarus, and this verse was in the, in the uh, passage. And even though I didn't understand any tie, just from watching the video and knowing that passage, I was reminded that he is the resurrection and the life. If we live and believe in him, we will never die. Amen. And it was a joy to see those kids likely hear that message for the first time. Jesus has power over life and death. He has defeated death and will raise his people up from the dead on the last day, just as he did with Lazarus right before he said those words. John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus claims to be the only way to God the Father and that there is one truth, not many truths. John fifteen five. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is the vine that gives life to his people. The branches, us, the people, who have all that they need in him to bear fruit, including the fruit of the Spirit. John eight fifty three. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is claiming divinity here in the strongest possible terms, making it clear that he is greater than the patriarch Abraham and the prophets. He's hearkening to God, referring to himself as I am that I am when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. In Exodus three thirteen and 14, we read, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The Jews clearly understood Jesus' claim of deity based on their violent reaction to his words, as we see in John 8:59. And lastly, the ninth of the I am statements, John 18, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, I am he. Immediately prior to being arrested and in response to the Roman soldiers seeking Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus answers, I am he. Interestingly, that's how it appears in the English translation, but if you look at the Greek, the answer more simply translates simply as I am. Uh, So it could have a double meaning. I am Jesus of Nazareth, and maybe it's another veiled reference to I am who I am, a claim of divinity. All of these I am statements point to the reality that Jesus is not only fully man, but also fully God. This is a powerful rebuttal to those such as Jehovah Witnesses that seek to reduce Jesus to something of a lesser God, or to Muslims who regard Jesus only as a prophet. No, Jesus claimed much more than that for himself. He claimed to be God and equal with the Father. Though many of our day fail to understand or accept Jesus' claims to deity, the scribes and Pharisees of his day certainly understood this as they accused him of blasphemy and sought to kill him for it. Jesus, by his own words, did not leave open to us the possibility of merely being a lesser God or a prophet or simply a good teacher. No, his claims of being God and the only way of salvation leave us with C.S. Lewis's trilemma. That is, that Jesus' claims about himself mean that he was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Our text, in the context of the other I Am proclamations of Christ in the book of John, make it clear that as the bread of life, Jesus is claiming to be Lord, the God who gives life. And so if you have Jesus, you have everything. 
not just the love and righteous teachings of a godly man, but the bread of life, God himself. In light of this awesome truth, it's right for us to ask ourselves, what is our joy and happiness founded upon? In whom or what do we delight? Christ or our circumstances? Christ or the fleeting things of this life? Nehemiah reminds us that the joy of the Lord is our strength, in Nehemiah 8.10. David tells us in Psalm 37.4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. O Christian, the crowds in our text today had the king of the universe right in front of them, having just performed mighty miracles, and yet they could not see their real need or what Christ was offering them of himself. May we not make the same mistake. May we not be like the rich young ruler and turn back to trust in our temporal possessions that are here today and gone tomorrow, but instead may we cling to Christ and rejoice in all the eternal benefits that we have in him and in him alone. Unconditional, perfect love that will never fail. The covenant-keeping God who dwells with us and who never leaves us nor forsakes us. The Savior who took the punishment for our sins in our place and forgives us and imputes his, gives us his righteousness as we stand before the Father. The Holy Spirit who comforts, equips, and empowers us. The risen Lord who has conquered death, sin, and the grave, and evil. The hope of a new heavens and new earth with no more sin, no more suffering, no more death, no more evil, no more tears. Peace that passes all understanding from the Prince of Peace. Joy, unspeakable, abundant life now and forever. And the list goes on and on. Beloved, if you are in Christ, all of these benefits and many more are yours. Christ has given himself to you. He says to you, I am the bread of life. Feed on me and you will hunger no more. Last week we received communion together. It was a really special time for me. The first time in over a year that I've been able to have communion with Laura. But what was truly special was that we got to feed on Christ. He says, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Together we receive the bread as a symbol of the bread of life that is Christ. A tangible reminder that truly is in him that we live and move and be and have our being, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Acts 17. O Christians, see your desperate daily need for this bread of life and feed on Christ and his word that your soul, your family, and Christ's church would be strengthened and Christ would be glorified. And be reminded that this is a daily endeavor. We can't coast along and expect to be spiritually healthy, right? The Israelites had to go every day to the wilderness to pick up the manna. In the same way, we need to go before the Lord every day and renew our spiritual strength and feed on Christ, feed on his word. Let's conclude our passage here, verses 36 through 40. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. We read these words, and we're reminded of the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or we're reminded of Jesus praying in agony at the Mount of Olives just before his arrest and crucifixion. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Jesus makes it clear that his will is to do the will of his Father who sent him. And that will includes the items that are mentioned in verses 36 through 40 of our text today. Not casting out anyone who, has get, who comes to him. Not losing any whom the Father has given to him. And raising up and granting eternal life to all who look on him and believe in him. Beloved, these words should excite and rejuvenate us. It is the will of the Father and of his Son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners who call upon him and to give them eternal life and the assurance that those found in Christ will never be lost. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Is there any greater news than this for those who hope in Christ? This promise of eternity with him? Oh, that we would spend more time meditating on Christ and all that he has done for us and promised to us Imagine how our mood would improve, how our priorities would change if we did this more often. When I returned to Thailand and saw my daughter Laura in person and got to hold her for the first time in over a year, I could not help but smile. I was so happy. In an even much greater sense, this is how it is when we meditate on the goodness of God and all that he has promised us in Christ. Our hearts cannot help but smile and rejoice and respond in heartfelt worship. In closing, in our passage today, Christ offers us something greater than physical sustenance, and that is spiritual life found only in him as the bread of life. Why did Jesus say, I am the bread of life? Again, John 20, 30 and 31 tells us that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus proclaimed that he is the bread of life and began his litany of I am statements pointing to his deity so that you may believe that he is the Son of God and may have eternal life in his name. Perhaps you're here today and you don't believe, or maybe you're not sure who Jesus is or what you think about him. Or maybe you profess Christ and claim to be a Christian with your lips, but your life betrays your profession and there is little in your life to confirm that you truly believe and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. You would do well to cry out like the man in Mark 9:24 and say honestly, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Confess to God and turn from your sins. Ask Jesus to forgive you. Believe that he is who he said he was, fully man and fully God, the great I am, and that he died on the cross to take the punishment for your sins and mine and that he rose again on the third day, conquering death, sin, and the grave, and thereby assuring those who trust in him that we too one day will rise from the grave and reign with him forever. Cry out to Jesus in saving faith. Come to him humbly, truly, and he will not cast you out, but will adopt you as his own forever. Receive him as your daily bread, nourishing your soul every day. Beloved, Seek after that which is eternal and spiritual. Accept Jesus as fully God with the power to grant eternal life. Rejoice and give thanks to God that Jesus will lose none of those who are his. Feed on Christ, the bread of life, 
and live forever with him. Let's pray.